Jesus, you are faithful. Um, thankfully, a lot more faithful than we are. Um, we struggle. Uh, we need somebody with perfect faith and perfect grace because um, we are far from. And Lord, as we look again today at a church that was failing um, and struggling, Lord, help us to keep our hearts and minds focused on our purpose and your intention in the church. May you uh, continue to be glorified in what we do and what we say. And may your spirit be at work in us and among us, through us and for us. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Um, We're talking about the mess um, that the Corinthian church had become. Uh, I've talked a little bit about this. Now, now this is a weird question, and don't raise your hand, but hopefully uh, I'm going to ask the question, uh, and again, you don't have to raise your hand, but how many of you actually took the opportunity of this study to go ahead and read through 1 Corinthians um, and consider it? Now, you say, you say, well, I don't need to read through it. You're preaching through it. It's okay. Um, but it's, it, is, it is so useful for us to be able to sit and to and to read through and I actually advocate reading through the text out loud. Um, it was meant to be read out loud. It's meant to be considered out loud. When you read out loud, you find that it, you focus it a little bit better. Um, I do not recommend listening to it, especially if you're doing it in bed, because um, you will fall asleep. Um, you're like, oh, I'll just listen to the audio of the Bible first. Um, and so uh, I've always thought the most amusing thing in the world would be to have the the Bible read um, by like Bobcat Goldthwait. Now, a lot of you have no idea who this person is, but he was one, had he managed to create one of the strangest comedic voices in the world. And in the 80s, he was kind of popular. Um, and uh, and I just think that would keep you awake. There would be no, that. Um, or uh, 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 Gilbert Godfrey, that would also be an amazing, an amazing Bible reader. Um, anyways, um, in the beginning, uh, uh, Christopher Walken would be great too. Anyway, chapter eight um, of First Corinthians, uh, and we're not going to hit all of this. I just want to mention what was going on. So, in the Corinthian church, um, the city of Corinth, we mentioned a couple weeks ago, the city of Corinth was a relatively new city. It had been, it had been raised to the ground. Um, by Julius Caesar, and so when it was rebuilt um, uh, only a couple of decades before Paul visited there, um, it was rebuilt to be a magnificent trade city. And one of the big things that they did in that city was it was a city of temples. There were temples everywhere. Um, if you had a god, you got to have a temple. Um, that was it was like a temple food court. There were options for everybody, um, and and you could just have all these spaces. So everybody got very used to this idea of there are temples everywhere. This town's economy is built around two things, sailors on shore leave and sailors who want to go to temple. Um, and so this is the city and this these people then as they're coming to faith in Christ, um, they're adapting their lifestyle that they're already living 
um, to being Christians. And so that's one of the reasons why when you're reading 1 Corinthians, you notice he talks about temples a lot. Um, he's always talking, Paul is always talking about temples. And the reason he's doing this is this is the way that this city was. Um, they had a lot of these kind of sites. And in chapter 8, Paul answers a question about, in verse 1, concerning food offered to idols. Now the reason this is an important question is because in the city of Corinth, the butcher shops were all connected to the temples of the pagan gods. Um, and so the economy, the, 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 it was basically be vegan or eat temple meat. Um, and that was an interesting challenge for Christians. And Paul makes it very clear in the context that it doesn't matter what your butcher is. All right. Um, I flip this around a little bit. How many have ever had somebody that's like, can you refer to me a, to a Christian plumber? You ever been asked that question? I got to be honest. I don't care what creed my plumber falls in, as long as he belongs to the creed that fixes it once and it doesn't break again. Um, I, I give me a pagan who knows what he's doing, um, and uh, and I, I will be happy. I'm not there to get spiritual advice from him. I'm there for him to make sure that 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 pipe doesn't explode. Well, they were going the other direction with this. They were looking for Christian meat. There were people walking around going, "Are there any Christian butchers?" And Peter and Paul's kind of response to it, he goes, it doesn't matter who's swinging the knife. Um, just eat the meat if you can. But there was a problem with this. Um, there was a problem with this. There were a group of people that were walking around in this church, and he, he mentions them in verse one, verse 2, uh, or verse 1. He says, um, we know that uh, all of us, now concerning the food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. Um, and if you follow the way he uses knowledge this way, this knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines he knows something he does not know, does not yet know as he ought to know, but if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no existence. He says it doesn't matter. It's, it's an empty idol. It doesn't matter. Um, and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom we uh, through whom are all things and through him we exist. So he goes, you know, we all know this. We know that these these false gods, they're not real. This this meat being offered to idols doesn't matter that the butcher's attached to the temple. It's okay. But, but there are some who don't know that. And he goes on and he starts to elaborate. He starts to talk about how there are some other believers who are struggling with this. There are, there are people in the, in the city who don't understand that, that Christians don't worship the gods that are being worshipped at those temples. He goes, we know, we, we know this. We know that it doesn't matter where the, the meat comes from. We know this. But not everybody knows it. And the problem in the Corinthian church is there were a group of people um, who were going around who were claiming spiritual superiority based on a couple of things. In this passage, they're basing their spiritual superiority on their knowledge base. 
And they're walking around going, well, we know there are no false gods. There are no, these gods aren't real, so we can just go ahead and eat this meat. It's okay. It's okay that you're struggling with this. It's okay that you were formerly a prostitute in this temple where your body was used for the worship of this god. It's okay. It doesn't matter. This is not real anyway. How many have ever had somebody tell you something that you're struggling with is not real? Don't you love that? Isn't that the solution to all problems? Has anyone ever gone, oh, it's not real, okay. These are people that were coming out of a lifestyle that, in which that temple was super integrated. It was, it was a part of their identity. And there are Christians in the church going, yeah, it's, it's fine. It's not a big deal. It's, just go ahead and, and do this thing. Um, uh, you know, this, this would be the equivalent of starting an AA meeting in a bar. And saying, it's okay, you're not an alcoholic anymore, you're in the program, you'll be fine. You're in the program, you'll be fine. Now those that are in that program know that you're in the program, that'll be fine, is not one of the tenets of Alcoholics Anonymous. It is, I am a drunk, I will be a drunk, I am always going to be an alcoholic, and so I have to safeguard myself from this, this, uh, this sickness, Right? And so in the church, this Corinthian church, there are a group of people in this church going, ah, it's fine, come on, join in, it's, it's great, it's wonderful, just eat, look at the meat, it's so great, you're over there eating a salad, I've got a porterhouse, you know, come on, have the steak with me. They were claiming a superior knowledge. And, and Paul says this in verse, uh, verse 8, he says, food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. He goes, it doesn't matter what you eat or don't eat. Your spiritual situation before God is not going to be changed by that. But you need to be aware of the relationship your actions have with others. One of the most dangerous things that Christians encounter is people who claim to have a superior knowledge and so justify things that may not be right for everyone. They, they walk around and saying, oh, you know, it's okay. It, it, we, we have the freedom to do this. Don't you understand? It doesn't matter. It has no power over you. You, you, you should be able to just do whatever you want in, in, in Christ. And the Apostle Paul says, um, your knowledge, in verse 11, by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. So there were some people that were going around, they were claiming to have superior knowledge, and that made them Christian, superior Christians, made them super Christians. And uh, they were trying to get everybody else to live like they live. Have the freedom that we have. Be, be like us. And then, um, and I'm not going to get through this whole thing. The Apostle Paul, basically, he starts to talk about this. He says in verse uh, 13, If food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. Now, this is a good example of Paul using hyperbole, figurative speech. Does, is Paul saying that he is going to be a vegetarian? 
What does he mean when he says, I will never eat meat lest my, I make my brother stumble? Well, he means if I find myself in a situation with a brother or a sister who struggles with what this means in our relationship with Christ, not my relationship with Christ, our relationship with Christ. If this is going to be a stumbling block, I would rather just have a salad than be a stumbling block for my brother. Then he proceeds to illustrate this in one of the most interesting ways I think I have ever seen in the Bible. Paul illustrates this by, shouldn't you be paying me? This is such a weird moment. He says to him, he says in chapter 9, verse 1, he says, am I not free? He says, can I do whatever I want? Am I not an apostle? Am I not an authority over the church? He says, are you not my workmanship in the Lord? Wasn't I there when you came to faith? If to others I'm not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship. He says, you know this about me? Don't I, verse 4, don't I have the right to eat and drink? Don't I have the right to bring along a believing wife as do the other apostles? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? He says, he says you know what? I have, a, I have a, a right, a freedom, an authority as an apostle, as a preacher. I have a right to demand of you that you support me. But he goes, but I've never done that. I've never done that. Now, I actually think Paul never does that with the Corinthians because if they supported him, they would feel they had control over him. This, by the way, is the reason. I'll just throw this out there. This, by the way, is the reason I don't sign checks. I don't see people's offering envelopes. You say, well, you know, that's just common sense. It is indeed. But I also don't like the idea of people trying to use, well, this is how much I give or this is what to try to control me. You say that would never happen. Oh, yes, it will. Oh, yes, it does. I've had, I've had people actually sit down with me and say, I'm willing to give this amount to the church if you will allow me to do fill in the blank. This particular ministry or whatever, you know. At which point I thank them for the dinner that um, I'm now paying for because I'm not going to take their money. Um, and, uh, and inevitably they find somewhere else to go. Um, the, the, what Paul was dealing with with the Corinthian church was this idea that he says, I didn't take any money from you, even though it's my right to take money from you. I worked the entire time I was there with you. And you know the reason why? Because I didn't want to become a stumbling block to you. I didn't want you to start thinking that you had to pay my salary, that you had to take care of me. He says, I wanted you to be free to follow the gospel. And yet now... You guys are going around and you are using your freedom to actually cause problems with younger believers, with weaker believers. He goes, I went out of my way to not, not abuse the freedom I have to ask for what is biblical for me. And he, he makes an argument that it's biblical for the church to support the vocational ministers. He, he makes this argument. He goes, but I never asked that of you. Because I didn't want it to be a stumbling block for you, and yet here you are doing something and becoming a stumbling block to others. 
And, and Paul is looking at this. He says in verse, uh, in verse 12, he says, Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right. We endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. He says in, again in verse 15, I've made no use of any of these rights. Nor am I writing this time, thing to secure any provision. I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. You say, what is his ground for boasting? He says, if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. Necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. He says, I wanted to make sure that my ministry with you, it was not, it was not tainted. There were no stumbling blocks. And so this is what I chose to do. Now, what Paul is doing is he's making situational arguments. So he is not saying that pastors should not be paid. I've read people take this to say that. That's not what he's saying. Um, he actually elsewhere talks about that issue in, in length. Um, he is also not saying that we should not eat meat. He is also not saying uh, any number of other things. He's, he's using these situations to communicate a deeper principle. He's trying to get the Corinthians past the place where he has to give them a list of all the things they can do and not do. And try them to understand the underlying spiritual principles. Um, and he's going to keep developing this idea as he goes through this text. I, I want to um, bump over to chapter 10. And, uh, and he, says, he says this in chapter 10 and verse 1. I don't want you to be unaware, brothers. Don't, don't be confused. That our fathers were all under the cloud... All passed the three, passed through the sea. All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. All ate the same spiritual food. All drank the same spiritual drink. They drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. The rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. And these things took place as an example that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters. As some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Now, people have gotten confused about this. Because in chapter 8, he says it's okay for us to eat the meat offered to idols. There's no, there's no significance to those idols. And then here, he says, don't rise up to eat and drink because you'll become an idolater. Well, how can those both things be true? Well, idolatry is when you take something that isn't real and you make it real. You take something that doesn't have authority over you and you give it authority over you. And, and in this situation, he's saying, look, everybody struggled. Everybody went through the same things. Everybody was together, but not everybody's in the same place. There are those that when we create these opportunities that we have freedom to have, they're still going to wreck the lives of people. Um. Let me ask you a question. Was there alcohol in the wine that Jesus served at the Lord's table, the Lord's Supper, the Last Supper? Was there alcohol in that wine? Now, half the church is going to go, no. There absolutely was. All right? It's not called wine if it doesn't have some fermentation going to it. It's like, oh, no, no, it was new wine. That just means it, it was new. <laughs> I mean, you all know the difference between new wine and old wine, right? Um, and, and I'm not a... I, couldn't tell you what the taste of any wine is. I, there, I have no desire to, to 
drink wine. It's not not my my bag. Um, but you know, there 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 was uh, there was clearly it was wine. All right. I mean, this is this is how you made wine. Alcohol. The fermentation process preserves the calories so that you can you can have this. This is how this worked in the ancient world forever. Um, there was no such thing as, as pasteurized grape juice until a guy named Welch's, who was a Methodist pastor. Um, but you know, it, it, there's a, so why don't we use alcoholic wine in the Lord's table? I mean, clearly there, there's a precedent for it. We should be able to do it. Right? In fact, at one point people talk about people getting drunk and going to excess during the Lord's table. That's hard to do on grape juice. Um, so, you know, so, so why, why don't we use alcoholic, alcoholic wine? Because we don't want to be a stumbling block to someone. We don't know who in our gathering, in our assemblies, is struggling with alcoholism or, or that this might be the, the gateway, the open door to something. We don't, we don't know what's going on. It's better, um, as I often say, it's better to err on the side of conservatism than to use our freedom as a license to push people into sin. And, and this Corinthian church, this church, they couldn't make that distinction. They, they couldn't understand, um, they couldn't see where their freedoms um, to do whatever, whatever they were actually free to do could affect the relationships with other believers and actually become a problem. And, and as they're sorting through this, um, Paul brings them to a position in verse 14. I just want to mention this, um, this quick line, and you can meditate on this one if you want. He says this, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. Do you catch Paul's irony there? He says, You should flee from idolatry. Anybody with half a brain knows that. You figure out who I'm talking about. That's really what he's saying. He's challenging them to think them think about this. He says, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there's one bread. We who are many are one body. For we all partake of the one bread. Let me give you the big idea right here, and then I'm going to give you some practical stuff after this. If you do not think that your actions impact other believers, or if you can say with confidence, my actions don't impact other people, then you are not living in the biblical community of the church. You have isolated yourself from other believers. And that is a bad place to be. You say, I come to church, I do my thing, I don't want anybody to know about my struggles, I don't want to know anybody in my life, I don't have any connections with those people, this is my Jesus time, this is my me time. Oh, do I hate the phrase me time. Oh, I hate that phrase. Oh, it's just, a, it's just I just needed some me time. Can you imagine the Apostle Paul or Jesus? Guys, I know there's lepers and such, but I just, I need a mani-pedi. Uh, my sister's favorite say, I need some shopping therapy. 
I just I just need to go. I'm just going to go to Jerusalem, hang out at the stalls, have a drink on my own, maybe catch a show. I need me time. Man, what does that look like? And I'm not saying you shouldn't take care of yourself, that you there aren't things that you need to do individually, but when you're when your spiritual walk and your spiritual actions and freedoms and disciplines or lack thereof have zero impact on everybody else around you, that's not biblical. We are one. We eat of one bread. We drink of the one cup. We're supposed to come together. Well, I don't want people to know about this part of my life. Really? I mean, listen, there are certain parts of my life, you don't need to know where I buy my socks, right? You're okay without that information. But if I hide everything about my life from everybody that I call my brother and sister, who I come to the table together and are unified in Christ, I hide uh, myself because, you know, well, you know, I mean, they don't, you know, before too long, you find yourself all by yourself. Now, I'm going to say something. May or may not like it. I'm just going to say it now. There's no such thing as a Lone Ranger Christian. All right? And this is going to sound a little controversial, but the gospel is not about you as an individual. It's about us as the people of God. It's The work of the gospel and the work of the church should be in alignment. One of the problems with the modern church is those two things are out of phase. And trying to get them to work together. That the reality of the gospel lived out in the lives of believers. That, that the glory of God being manifest not just on a Sunday morning in the, in the sanct- sacred hall, but in all aspects of our lives. If you do not impact others, you are not living in Christian community. Now, I'm not saying we all need to build a commune and be farming. And I mean, if you want to, I mean, that's cool. I like salads, but, um, you know, but I mean, like, like the, I'm not saying that we need to, you know, go radical, some socialist, you know, craziness or anything like that. But, but we should be in Christian community. We should be so connected with one another. That when one of us is stumbling, we're close enough together to give them a hand. We should be close enough together that when we are when we have to um, endure a little bit of correction or chastening from our brothers and sisters, we already have a strong enough relationship that that doesn't break everything. I hate as a pastor having to call attention to things that people are struggling with. It's not fun. I hate it. But because I'm connected and I'm integrated and I'm a part of life with everybody else, we're living together as the church. We've got one bread. We've got one cup. That means we're, we're, we're in this together. We're in this together. He says, so I want to give you what Paul gives us, um, just some simple checklists, simple, three simple ideas on how to know whether your actions in relationship with others, if your actions even in the things that you are free to do. All right, chapter 10 and verse 23, all things are lawful. 
Now, I, the English Standard Version actually puts this in quotation marks, and I think there's a good reason. I think this was what everybody was arguing. They were all saying, I can do whatever I want. All things are lawful to me. I, I'm saved. I don't have to follow the Jewish law. I'm a Gentile. All things are lawful. He says, but all things are not, what's the word? Helpful. Helpful to me? Is he talking about self-help? Helpful to who? To others. Who do we help? Those that are doing better than us or those that are doing worse than us? Who do we help? Now, according to, the gov according to political campaigns, we help the millionaires that are running for office. But in reality, we, we help those who are struggling. You don't, you don't, you know, if you're on a, you're on a, a, a staircase, how many have ever, how many ever climbed the stairs of the Statue of Liberty? Anybody done that? Holy moly, there's a lot of stairs in the Statue of Liberty. All right. And, and they're not like fun stairs. It's not like fun stairs with windows and such. You're inside a copper structure um, and you're climbing and you're climbing. How many have ever been climbing stairs with somebody and they were struggling? And you go, ah, tough to be you. Just keep going. No, obviously you're with somebody. You, you help them. You help the person that's next to you. So are my actions, whether they're lawful or not, are they helpful? Are they helpful to others in need? Then he says, all things are lawful, but not all things build up. Not all things edify. Not, only, not all things build up. Not only does it help someone who is down to get up, but does it also help someone who's with me go higher? Can I be honest? Our tendency as Christians, isn't it, even if we're helping people, is just try to get them to our level. We just, if we, everybody can just get to my level, that's good. I don't want anybody higher than me. Let's just keep everything nice. Like maybe my head's just a little bit, a little bit above, but everybody's pretty much the same. We, we don't want, you know, we have a tendency to not, not know how to help somebody up. It's not just about helping those that are below me, but they're also about building things up together. Because guess, guess what? When you build others up, guess what happens with you? You get built up. You develop disciplines and, and abilities you did not know that you needed. And then he says this. He says, uh, let, verse 24, let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Do my actions help someone who is in need? Do they build up someone to grow and mature? And do I think about the impact my actions have on others? You say, well, I mean, come on. Yesterday, um, this is a perfect illustration of this. Yesterday, for some reason, everybody's brain fell out of their heads while they were driving their cars. I don't know what the deal was. I was driving through the Target parking lot. I had stopped at Lowe's to get sand. I still can't believe I had to buy dirt. But um, I, I, I came around the back of the Target parking lot, and there was a car coming this way, and I was coming this way, and we were both respecting ourselves. And there was a minivan in one of the parking spaces as both of the cars came, just pulled right out in front of us, just backed up right into the front of us. Both of us slammed on our brakes. I, having learned to drive in Massachusetts, went... <laughs> I mean, I honked that horn. And the funny thing is, the guy went like this. He goes like this. He goes... <laughs> like, 
dude, you didn't look before. He had, you know what it was? These, I hate these things. He had the backup camera, and he was looking in the backup camera, and there was nobody behind him. He wasn't looking to see, to remember there were cars on the other side. You know, traffic happens, right? And so many Christians, we live like that. We don't think about the impact we have on others. We don't think about what it does to other people because as long as I'm in my lane, as long as I'm doing what I need to do, everything is cool. Everything is good. Everything is great. If I don't think about the impact I have on others, inevitably I won't have any sense of the impact I have on others. And I will do damage I'm not even aware of. Uh, um, I was I was asked the other day how long I was going to stick around. <laughs> well, it's a good question. How long am I going to stick around? And and I got this question by the way every degree I got. So I got my first master's degree back in 2006, and people said, "So where are you going to go now?" I said home, and then back here. <laughs> then I got my second master's degree in 2016. Everybody said, "Oh, so where are you going to go now?" I was like home, and then I'm going to come back here. Then I went and got a doctorate, and everybody was like, well, now he's definitely out of here. Nope. Um, they say, why? You know, when I went to Bible college, what the average tenure of a pastor in a Baptist church was? 18 months. Pastors were hired guns, who got brought in to entertain the congregation and get some programs going for a little while, and then they would move on to the next big church. And they would step up, step up, step up until they were pastor of a mega church. Now, I grew up in a home where my dad, perhaps not the most successful pastor in the world, um, pretty cool guy, I think we'd all agree on that, um, but not the most uh, dynamic organizer, all right? Um, my dad was in one church for 15 years. He's been in the current one for 30 years because he believes, and I inherited that belief, that the pastor is not above the congregation. He is not a hired employee. He is a part of the community. Now, just like every community, there are times that people move on, that God opens an opportunity, but he's a part of that community. He needs to be in there. He needs to be weeping with people. He needs to be sharing with people. He needs to be struggling with people. And, and I don't know if you guys have been in a lot of churches. There are a lot of churches where the pastor never, ever hints that there's anything wrong with him. My policy is if somebody acts like there's never anything wrong, there's a lot wrong. I'm a big fan of being honest. If I'm struggling, if, I, if I'm dealing with something, if I say something stupid, which happens more often than I like it to be, I go ahead and admit that I did it. If I make a bad decision, I just go ahead and fail forward. Deal with the consequences and move on. But you know what? We, when, what happens when pastors are isolated like that? They just leave a path of spiritual destruction behind them because they no longer are sensitive to the impact they have on others. And there's a lot of Christians like that. I think one of the extraordinary things about Bedford Road, and if you're visiting with us, you're going to get to know this about our church. We do not all agree with it about everything. 
We, we do not have 100% consent. And I really, really am uncomfortable when I have to say something that I know people disagree with. It, it's hard for me. I want everybody to get along. I want everybody to just, you know, enjoy being around. I, I don't like those kind of things, but they have to be done. So when we do it, we want to make sure in Bedford, at Bedford Road, and I think you'll see this, we have built this environment where it is okay to disagree. It is okay to not consent on the, the non-cardinal issues, right? So you're, you're arguing with me about whether Jesus was born of a virgin. We're going to have issues. But if you have a question about the way we do things or kind of a vague interpretation or say, yeah, you know, not everybody agrees. I don't agree with everything. There are some things I really wish were different. I want the sanctuary to be in the round. Nobody else wants that, but I do. Um, I, I dig the idea. I, I, I love different things that I know are never going to fly with the vast congregation. And I'm okay with it. Um, I want things to happen. They don't happen. We see how it goes. And, and if it doesn't work out, it doesn't work out. Because we're not going anywhere. And I'm, I mean that. We're not going anywhere. And I'm not saying I. I'm saying we. We're not going anywhere. Now, if your life moves in such a way that you relocate or God, God gives you a, a, a vision for a ministry at another congregation, another expression of the church, and you go that way, we're going to be 100% behind. We're going we're gonna to be there. But we, the church, we're not going anywhere. We disagree, and it's okay. We have conversations, and it's okay. We have disagreements. We have, um, let's, let's call them uh, effortvescent conversations about differences of opinion. It's okay. It's all right. It's all right for us to not always be on the same page as long as we care for one another. And we think about the impact we have on each other. But what there is a problem with is when somebody becomes so disconnected that they begin to just bulldoze everything. Because I have superior knowledge, I'm more mature, I'm this, I'm that. There's a, a couple of words for those kind of people. You can come up with them on the ride home. But we as the church, we have to be thinking, does it help? Does it edify? How does it impact others? And move forward with the things that help and edify and positively encourage others to follow Christ. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Jesus, we all from time to time struggle with what it means to be part of a community. Your disciples struggled. When they became apostles, they struggled. The early church struggled. It's nothing new. But help us to be one. Not blindly and numbly, just compliant like some cult, but one in our diversity, in our differences, in our conversations, willing to um, come to the table together, to... Um, hear from the scriptures and express and interchange and, and, and disagree even strongly 
and yet still be able to just suborn all of that to our one ship in Christ, 